Was the United States responsible for creating Mujahideen forces just to get rid of a leftist government in Afghanistan? Did the Afghan people come to see the Taliban as preferable to the U.S. occupation? How is the withdrawal of forces authorized by Trump going to negatively affect the record of his successor, Joe Biden? Is the U.S. government secretly working with Taliban forces to protect its cherished opium dealings in the region? This week on the Global Research News Hour, on the 20th anniversary of the launching of the war in Afghanistan, we will probe the dynamics of the relationship between the U.S. and Afghanistan and the look ahead to what it will mean in the larger Cold War with Russia and China. Our first guest, retired Professor of Geography John Ryan, will speak about his visit there in 1978 and how the recent withdrawal of U.S. forces was a result of their 20-year occupation. Next, we'll hear from international economist Professor Rodrique Tremblay about the failure of the U.S. mission and the consequences for the recent Democratic president who ended it. Finally, Professor Michel Chosodovsky comes on the show explaining that the withdrawal of U.S. soldiers is not the fundamental defeat it appears to be. On this week's program, Defeat or Victory, The War in Afghanistan, 2001-2021. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 8, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Dr. Killian came to public attention when the recording of the Gray Bruce Hospital Board was released. Watch below. In that recording, Board President Gary Sims cannot provide any evidence whatsoever of his dire predictions of a, quote, tidal wave of pediatric COVID cases, unquote, which he says are coming this fall while threatening Dr. Killian when she spoke up for the truth. Dr. Killian has spoken out before regarding the growing corruption of our health care services and has shown leadership and integrity by resigning from her position. At least 80% of the ER patients in the past three months were double-vaxxed, says Dr. Killian of her informal survey of patients entering the ER with serious medical issues. How many people are we going to kill if we keep following this narrative? That comes from the article under the headline video. How many people are we going to kill if we keep following this narrative? Asks Ontario Emergency Physician by Dr. Rashanye Killian and Strong and Free Canada 
posted October 6th, originally published at Strong and Free Canada. In short, this panel discussion focused on what they perceived as the need for a universal flu vaccine, but they admitted that the old way of producing vaccines was not sufficient for their purposes and that they needed some kind of global event where many people were dying to be able to roll out a new mRNA vaccine to be tested on the public. They all agreed that the annual flu virus was not scary enough to create an event that would convince people to get a universal vaccine. And as we now know today, about two years after this event, that quote-unquote terrifying virus that was introduced was the COVID-19 SARS virus. And so now we know why the flu just quote-unquote disappeared in the 2020-21 flu season. It was simply replaced by COVID-19 in a worldwide cleverly planned pandemic to roll out the world's first universal mRNA vaccines. That comes from the article, Video Emerges, where Fauci and others planned for a universal mRNA flu vaccine, which became the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, because people were not afraid enough of the flu virus. By Brian Shilhavy, posted October 6th, originally published at Health Impact News. The organization's goals are aligned to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and it will increasingly align with the UN's Agenda 2030. What does this have to do with Canada's provincial health policies? For one, it brings into question whether the impact factor of scientific research is colored by Clarivetti's unscientific commitment to sustainability and specifically that defined by the UN's SDGs. These SDGs are similarly appealed to by the multinationals that are also acting in advance of actual political legislation in imposing vaccine mandates upon their employees and their customers in the name of following the science. Their model of stakeholder capitalism is like Clarivati, all about the UN's bureaucratic imposition of sustainability. That comes from the article, Why is the UN Dictating Canada's Provincial Health Policies? By Professor Scott Masson, posted October 6th, originally published in the Epoch Times. Below are the latest data as at 15th of September 2021. The earlier data appear in the appendix below. EU EEA Switzerland to 11th of September 2021, 24,528 COVID-19 injection related deaths and 2,292,967 injuries per UDRA vigilance database. UK to the 1st of September 2021, 1,632 COVID-19 injection related deaths and 1,186,844 injuries per MHRA yellow card scheme. USA to the 3rd of September, 2021, 14,506 COVID-19 injection-related deaths 
and 3,146,691 injuries per VAERS database. Total for EU, UK, USA, 40,666 COVID-19 injection-related deaths and 6,626,502 injuries reported as at 15th of September, 2021. That comes from the headline, J'accuse. The gene-based vaccines are killing people. Governments worldwide are lying to you, the people, to the populations they purportedly served. Posted October 6th, originally published at Doctors for COVID Ethics. What is the mechanism pertaining to the purchase and delivery of more than 1.8 billion doses of the COVID-19 vaccine to the third world? The global supply chain, as well as the flow of money payments is complex. The donations by the rich countries take the form of a purchase implemented via Gavi COVAX, which is responsible for the procurement from Big Pharma, as well the delivery to the recipient developing countries. What this means is that the funds allocated to Official Development Assistance, or ODA, by the rich countries which historically have been tagged as a means to finance poverty alleviation and social programs in the third world, have now been redirected to fund the purchase of about 1.8 billion doses of the deadly COVID vaccine for delivery to poor countries which cannot afford to buy it. Ironically, this comes at a time when the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres asserted in his address to the UN General Assembly, rhetorically, quote, we must bridge the gap between rich and poor within and among countries, unquote. That comes from the article, people are dying worldwide. Foreign aid to finance 1.8 billion vaccine doses. Western governments, billionaires, and big pharma come to the, quote, rescue of the poor countries, unquote. By Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted October 7th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. To examine the situation in Afghanistan after the departure of the U.S. and the re-entry of the Taliban... We're going to take a look at the recent history, but not just of the war, but of the 20 years leading up to it. Our guest is Professor John Ryan. Uh, John Ryan is a retired professor of geography and senior scholar at the University of Winnipeg in Canada. He was in Afghanistan in 1978 during the one and a half year period when a leftist group governed the country following the revolution. Uh, He's recently written the article, Afghanistan Before and After U.S. Intervention. He joins us now to fill us in on this, his own observations and research. Good morning, Professor Ryan. It's great to see you again and have you with us. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Nice to see you. 
So uh, in 1978, you were on sabbatical during uh, your time there in, in November of 1978, uh, working on a research project. Tell us briefly, if you can, what stood out for you about life in this newly liberated country? Well, I traveled from Peshawar in, in, uh, uh, in Pakistan by bus uh, to Kabul, stayed overnight, and the next morning I went uh, just before I left, so this was uh, November 1978, I left um, uh, Winnipeg beginning of May 1978 for an eight-month research project in Asia, doing agricultural research uh, in, uh, on, on farms in Asia. I managed to do 70 studies in, um, in 12 countries starting in Japan, and I wound up in Afghanistan where I did four studies. Anyway, I got to the, so just before I left, and what I want to say is that I heard on the radio that there had been a revolution in Afghanistan. And I wondered what the heck is going on. I didn't hear anything about while in Asia, so I got there and I, I went to the dean's office and the dean was sitting behind his chair, nicely dressed, suit and tie. And I introduced myself and I said, you know, I heard you've had a revolution. Will I be able to do anything here? And he looks at me, pushed his chair back and a splendid English British accent said, revolution, day and a half, you know, I'll tell you all about it. I was like, oh, I saw it all. So for the next hour or so, he said, well, first we'll order tea and we'll call in my colleagues. <laughs> So for the next hour or so, they told me what went on. So that's where I had my, my first indication of what was happening. They told me that, uh, I forgot exactly, no, two thirds of the, um, of the farms were, were owned by landlords. Interest rates were 25 up to 40% in some places. The landlords and mullahs owned 3%, rather composed 3% of the population. And he said, this is a dreadful situation. September 1st, he said they canceled all farm rural debts. Anyway, we then went to see the farms, talk to the farmers. I will never forget my, my session, one of the farmers, I said, you know, what's it like for you now? And he clasped his hands in front of me and he said, well, if there is heaven somewhere, I'm in it. He says, I now have my land, I have my, my house. I never, ever expected to own it again, and now I do. And I, I could not be happier. This was the experience I had with all the farmers I talked to. And with the shops, they were happy. <clears throat> they said, we're not quite sure how you can be Marxist and Muslim. But he said they haven't interfered with our religion. Farmers now have money. Business is, is wonderful. Mm. Yeah, so that was yeah. my experience. It yeah. was, um, and the U.S. then proceeded to undermine this entire operation. Yeah, it, what changed everything was the US, U.S. authorizing Operation Cyclone, which spent... That's right. Uh, on military training and arms for the Mujahideen. And, and as well, there was a, a figure, Hifazullah Amin, who was uh, the figure in the government who was actually a CIA plant. And he tried to 
undermine the government from within. So you had those two forces acting on this place. Yeah, was it just for, for the sake of bringing the Soviets into Afghanistan? What brought the Soviets in? Yeah. Well, it actually behind all this was Zbigniew Brzezinski, the advisor to Carter, made this wretched excuse for a human being rot in hell repeatedly. He was the one who destroyed Afghanistan. He told Carter, we have to give the Soviets a taste of Vietnam. And so he says, we should undermine this because they're Marxists. And then they proceeded to recruit people. Problem was they couldn't get enough Afghanis to go and fight the Soviets. So they got people from Egypt, from Saudi Arabia. I, I've forgotten at the, at the moment, but I have it in my article. At first 40,000 and then close to 100,000 came in. They were trained in, in, uh, in schools in Pakistan, supplied with endless amounts of money and guns. And they then proceeded to undermine the government every which way. They objected to girls going to school. By the way, when I was there, I, I have photos of um, a scene at a bus stop, a woman in a burqa, another woman walking right nearby in a Western style skirt and a purse, a, a guy all dressed up with his uh, uh, Afghan outfit, a, a man in a business suit, all at the same bus stop. So. Anyway, uh, they then proceeded to uh, uh, train these people, the, these mujahideen, as they were called, would come into a school. They found a teacher teaching girls. They would kill him and sometimes disembowel him in the presence of the school kids. Uh, this was just damn awful what was happening. And so the government was threatened every which way. They tried to get help from the Soviet Union. At first, the Soviets said, no, we, th this is what the West would want but eventually convinced them to send in some troops to help them. Big mistake on the part of the Soviets. Yeah. They came in and then, as I say, the, uh, the, the CIA spent uh, billions of dollars on this with equipment and so forth and fought the Soviets. Mm. 10 years later, they pulled out. So, but the Afghan government still survived for another three years after the Soviet Union had collapsed without a single soldier there. Mm -hmm. And finally, they, they were overcome and defeated. If the Soviets had helped them, oh yes, when the Soviets pulled out, they, they made an agreement with the USA not to supply arms to them. The Soviets did that, the Americans didn't. They continued to supply arms. They finally came in, and the last president, Najibullah, you believe the, he was in a UN compound. They hauled him out of there. They beat him up. They castrated him, dragged him behind a, a, a truck through the streets, and then hung him up from a lamppost. So these are the Mujahideen that, that um, um, Brzezinski brought in and fooled Carter to allow this to happen. Sounds like the uh, it sounds like the uh, kind of a strategy in which they went into Nicaragua by creating the the contras and, and sending them yes. in. You know, it's sort of the same thing only with Muslims and uh, and you know all again all from outside, right? 
Exactly, exactly. Same story over and over again. Hmm. So now the Americans are, are out with their tails between their legs. What? And the Taliban are, are back. But the Americans won't allow any money in. They, they, are, they have held up billions of dollars. It's hard to see how the Taliban, Taliban are now a changed, uh, uh, from the sound of things, they're a totally changed group. They said they will pardon anyone who worked for the Americans. Uh, women will now be able to participate in the, in the economy and society as before. Uh, they're still working on it. Okay. But it looks as if it might be. They've made uh, agreements already with China and, and Russia and Iran for help. But no help, of course, from the Americans. So uh, there we are. Could you talk about uh, the issue of the opium? Because uh, th this is a—it seems to have become a major issue. They, 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 like we created oh, the mujahideen, yeah. but yeah, the like what were the in terms of opium? The opiate profits were used to benefit the United States. So I'm wondering when that entered into the picture. Well, almost from the very beginning. Really, um, Taliban. Um, uh, shortly before the Americans came in, had cut out all opium production, poppy production. This was in, uh, just before the Americans came in, the year before. It was down practically to zero. And when the Americans came in, all this was revived. I still don't quite understand this, but it turns out that the CIA was making enormous amounts of money from the sale of opium. They supervised the damn thing. They allowed aircraft to fly through without being checked anywhere. And so this was in the interest of the CIA to open up the opium market and through, through um, uh, uh, Pakistan. So um, now, of course, uh, they're the biggest opium producers in, in the world. So I and the Taliban have already announced they're going to reduce it down to nothing again. But if they'll be able to do it, hard to say. It's, uh, but that's the situation. Mm. Well, over the last 20 years, uh, we hear reforms uh, being brought to Afghanistan. I mean, the, 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 like under the, uh, the U.S. occupation, the rights of women, uh, people worry about the return of, of, of the Taliban. But uh, you, know, you, you said that they've changed and, and given a more accurate description of, of who in Afghanistan enjoyed gains uh, while others suffered, I, I suppose. I mean, but did, did civilians convert to the Taliban or, or what, what is, like, how did these guys uh, change overnight? Like it was different. Uh... Yeah, I'm not sure, Michael. I'm not sure. This, uh, this aspect, I'm not sure how that's, how that worked out or how it's working. Okay. So, I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. But, uh, well, well, could you talk about how the, how did the Taliban recover all its territory in, in such a short oh, amount of time. That's interesting. <clears throat> it turns out that the Taliban were very uh, extremely conservative at first. And um, anyway, they were the only group who, who opposed the Americans in no uncertain terms. And uh, so the Americans, actually, after the Americans came in for the first two years, there was no resistance at all. And people were sick and tired of war. And so they were hoping the Americans would revive their economy. 
Instead, the Americans then proceeded to raid houses, kick in people's doors, come in, take people out, torture them to try to get information on, on, on who knows what. Well, this alienated the, the, the countryside, and if anybody objected, they sent in planes and they bombed the place and they killed countless people. And so this alienated the, 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 the Afghan population totally. And their only solution to it was to go and try and help the Taliban. And so that's what happened. When the Americans pulled out, they thought it would take months for the Taliban to retake the country. It took two weeks, <laughs> which is just absolutely amazing. They, the Americans spent uh, hundreds of uh, billions of, of, of dollars, 2.3 uh, trillion, I think, on, the, on this thing, and 300 million on building up an Afghan army. Uh, I don't know how many people are supposed to be in the army. All these people, when the Americans left, they just abandoned everything and joined the Taliban. And so, this was the big surprise for the for the American government. How this this uh, uh, great army of theirs that they trained uh, uh, totally surrendered immediately. So there's no opposition to the to the uh, Taliban at the moment. Hmm. So, you know, there's uh, during the uh, in in August uh, when the, the the announcement was that they're 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 withdrawing their forces, the media portrayed it as like, you know, people are all terrified. They're pleading to get out, you know, and, and, and no. Canada and other countries were, were lining up, trying to move people fast. And then there's been a lot of, you know, positive reporting by the mainstream media about them trying to accommodate all of those people leaving. No. Is that just a minor set segment of the population or are there other people who are okay with this new, uh, well, this new set of, set of affairs? There were people, of course, who collaborated with the Americans and they had good cause to worry. You know, <laughs> say you and I collaborated with them, how do you think we would feel if the Taliban came in? So, but apparently the uh, Taliban are, are going to pardon them. Uh, it's still hard to say how it's, how it's going to work out. It's just that they need financial help in a desperate way now. <clears throat> Uh, to, 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 to operate the country. And, and the Americans have held up uh, all the money, tied the money up in the banks. And so the, the Taliban at the moment are practically bankrupt. How can you run a country with no money? Mm. So the, it's uh, hard to say how it's going to work out. We'll see what China will do mm. and Russia and Iran. Uh, they might help them. The Americans eventually might smarten up. Who knows? <laughs> you know, they yeah. might smarten up, but uh, hard to say. Yeah. So, so looking forward, then, uh, I mean, with uh, with the situation changed, I mean, well, is, is it look promising for the Afghan people in the end, and, and look negative for the United States because they've lost this, well, seem to have lost this grasp on Afghanistan, which there was their key to all of Central Asia, essentially. So what, 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 look, what looking forward, uh, how, how does that look for uh, the United States, Afghanistan, and, and for that matter, China and Russia? Well, as I say, it's still hard to, to see how it's going to turn out. Um, uh, let's hope the Americans aren't going to be totally stupid on this issue. 
and that they will will see, you know, that uh, it's not in their interests to try and um, and reopen the war against them in some way or other. They might smarten up. Hard to tell. I I really don't know. Okay. Hard to tell. Yeah. You have any last thoughts? Uh, you know, looking back to this this country that uh, you used to know and remember. Uh, what 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 do you think? You uh, just to close the interview. What, what would you like to say about? Uh, you know the, the situation and and uh, you know some of the people that you may have met uh, years ago. What what are your thoughts uh, when you think of them? Well, I hope I hope that things will come back to what I had seen in November of 1978, because it all looked so promising. There was a good deal of optimism. Um, you could just sense this in the in the streets, and as I said, the farmers were happy. Let's hope this comes back again somehow or other. Let's hope this comes back. Okay. Professor John Ryan, it's been good to, to talk to you again. Thank you so much for being available for the program. You're very welcome. Very welcome. We've been speaking with Professor John Ryan. He is a former senior, a former professor of geography at the University of Winnipeg and a senior scholar there. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We're going to be reflecting on some of the uh, issues around the the Afghan government, the abandonment of Afghanistan by the United States, uh, so, so to speak. Uh, Dr. Rodrique Tremblay is with me. He's an international economist. He holds a PhD in international finance from Stanford University, and he's a research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. Welcome back to the show, Professor Tremblay. Yeah, very, very glad to be with you, Michael. Now, the defeat of the Taliban and the emergence of a new government allied with the United States um, ha- I mean, had this maneuver been handled differently back in the past, would we could, could it have actually been a success? Well, the, this is a problem which is uh, connected to many other problems that the United States is facing uh, nowadays. In my uh, article um, uh, regarding the this disorder, disorderly retreat from Afghanistan, I mentioned that um, uh, this uh, retreat from Kabul on uh, August the 15th of this year uh, looks like a lot like the uh, exit from Saigon on April 30th, 1975, when the U.S. Uh, uh, decided to move out of move out of, uh, of Vietnam after something uh, like 18 years of fighting there, and this time that was uh, something like 20 years of fighting in the, in Afghanistan. Uh, so there's a parallel between the two, and there are lessons uh, to be learned uh, from these two uh, fiascos, in a sense. Uh, fiasco on many levels, militarily, but also politically, uh, the the uh, credibility of the United States government has declined over the world, 
And um, regarding the population of Afghanistan, uh, they have been a lot of people who have been left behind, uh, and they can they can they are expected to to be victims of the Taliban uh, in revenge. Uh, so this is. Uh, one uh, instance among many other instances uh, that uh, uh, re should uh, make Americans uh, reflect on the, their new role in the world. At what point would you say the, that the Afghan people turned against the Americans? Well, the, Af the Afghan people never asked the Americans to come in. You know, you remember this yeah. was done on October 7, 2001, by President uh, uh, George W. Bush, uh, mainly for domestic political reason after the September 11 attacks, since they, uh, the uh, terrorists had been trained, uh, training in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, the uh, immediate objective was to destroy the camp of Al-Qaeda in that country. Uh, but that objective became much wider as, as time went on, and, there, and four administrations, four American administrations, uh, were involved in Afghanistan so with many, sometimes with more than one, uh, 100,000 troops uh, there. So that was a big, uh, that was a big uh, enterprise, uh, and it ended up in being a, a nation-building enterprise after a while. And this was abandoned by President Biden. Mm. The people of Afghanistan were, were subjected to torture and, and death by armed drones. And, and the number of Afghans struggling to live on their current income went from 60% in 2008 to 90% in 2018. Uh, so, so you see their their struggle uh, getting worse and worse as time goes by. Would you do you think the majority of Afghani's came to see the Taliban as a, a lesser evil than the U.S.? Well, the Taliban had been in power before, and they were involved of uh, defeating the uh, Soviet Union uh, in 1979. Uh, so. Um, uh, this is a country which is uh, very mountainous, and there are many tribes, and it's a very complex uh, uh, country. And uh, uh, the people, the Taliban, are uh, extremists, uh, Islamists, uh, but uh, there are other groups. Uh, the ISIS group is uh, also involved in there. They are uh, uh, leaders, uh, tribal leaders in the north. And, I'm not an expert in, uh, in, in Afghanistan, but that, that's a very complex 40 million people uh, country, uh, which has no access to the sea, but is in, involved, uh, touched to many countries, including Russia and China. And um, therefore, uh, this, is a, uh, this, this is a place where empires die. Uh, the British had a lot of problem in, with Afghanistan in the 19th century. So nothing is new there, uh, and uh, the United States never overstayed their 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 presence in, in that country. Uh, uh, but as I said, uh, this is only one problem that the U.S. is facing now, uh, because it's not uh, anymore uh, the sole world power, and this changed the uh, 
uh, uptick of their international uh, uh, policy. The post-war era uh, after 1945 uh, is over, I think, or it will be closely, uh, completely over in a, in a decade. And this has to be uh, reflected in uh, a new thinking of the presence of the United States' uh, role in the world. Mm. Now, in your article, you write... It was the Democratic president who made the final decisions that led to the preventable August 2021 fiasco. I mean, he's only completing the mission that was started by Trump in, in February of 2020. Um, but this is why, despite Biden's denial, it's likely that it will be the Democrats who will suffer an electoral backlash for his crisis mismanagement in the 2022 and 2024 elections. Realistically, Professor Tremblay, how could Biden execute the withdrawal without courting disfavor? Yes, the, as you see, uh, politics is not a fair game sometimes uh, because the the main armistice, uh, which was uh, negotiated by the Trump administration with the Taliban uh, on February in the 2020 uh, uh, is the beginning, was the beginning of the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. Um, Mr. Biden, because uh, President Biden is, uh, is mainly con concentrating now on Iran, on uh, China, and on Russia, uh, didn't want to continue uh, that 20 years involvement of the U.S. in Afghanistan, and he accepted the, the armistice, even though this was wishful thinking that the Taliban uh, will behave uh, very differently than in the past and would not take over uh, the uh, government in, in Kabul. Uh, therefore, uh, because this is a democratic uh, president who took the last decision and um, made uh, look the United States uh, look poor, uh, poorly prepared and uh, weak, uh, this will hurt. It has already hurt the Biden administration because the president's uh, approval rating, which was in the uh, mid 50s, has fallen back to the mid 40s, where uh, that was a level of President Trump's uh, acceptance of popular uh, uh, rating. Uh, so uh, losing 10 percent, uh, 10 point of percentage points of uh, approval for a president is very uh, costly, and this will hurt, from my point of view, uh, the Democrats in the 1922 and. Uh, 1924 elections. Uh, so things like that have consequences. I don't. I don't think they, they thought it over, uh, and uh, I think they made the, They may have made a mistake uh, because there, there were uh, recommendations by the Pentagon and by the CIA to to let uh, in Afghanistan something like 2,500 troops in order to uh, control the uh, retreat. Uh, but, but, by, but by removing completely the soldiers uh, and keep them only at the airport, um, this uh, uh, 
brought about the fiasco that uh, were were shown all over the world over the TV sets uh, on August 15. Uh, so uh, it's unfortunately for the Democrats uh, because they have a very small majority in the House and they have uh, no majority in the Senate. So they lose uh, the House and they lose the Senate in uh, uh, the 2022 election. Then President Biden will become a lame duck president from then on. And his programs, if he wanted to uh, implement it, uh, will have even more trouble uh, to be uh, advanced uh, after the uh, next year's uh, midterm election. Dr. Rodrique Trombley, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Okay, Michael. It was very nice. Have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Rodrique Trombley. He is an international economist and, uh, and research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. The prominent view of President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan is that the Americans and their NATO allies were defeated. There's an alternative viewpoint, however. The Americans did not, in fact, sacrifice any of the key gains they secured once they fought and dominated Afghanistan. Articulating this view is none other than Michel Chosadovsky. He is, of course, the founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization in Montreal and editor of Global Research. Professor Chostovsky, welcome. Delighted to be on the program. When you wrote on the subject in August, you entitled your article, Afghanistan's Color Revolution, Narcotics and the Opium Trade. What did you mean when you referred to the withdrawal of the U.S. forces as a colored revolution? Well, first of all, a word on history. The Taliban are a creation of the CIA. Uh, they were uh, supported uh, back in what was called the Soviet-Afghan War. Uh, and the Taliban means the graduates. And these were the graduates of the Quranic schools, which the CIA established in Afghanistan uh, in, uh, well, as of the 1980s. Uh, I should mention that Afghanistan was a secular society. Uh, very advanced, very progressive, and the Soviet-Afghan war, what was called the Soviet-Afghan war, it wasn't really a Soviet-Afghan war, it was a U.S.-Afghan war, It was Af and in fact that means that the United States has been at war with, uh, with Afghanistan for more than 20 years. Um, but it's important to understand that the Taliban... Um, First of all, they are indigenous to Afghanistan, as opposed, let's say, to the to Al Qaeda, to the Mujahideen. That's an important distinction. But what happened is that these graduates of the Quranic schools uh, were, in effect, supported covertly by the CIA. Uh, they didn't quite uh, obey. Uh, U.S. guidelines when uh, a Taliban government was formed in 1996. Uh, they, um, I think one element which was essential was the fact that they uh, introduced uh, an opium eradication program, the drug trade, 
and uh, the narcotics economy collapsed overnight. And that was one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it was one of the strategic reasons for the invasion in 2001. There were others. But bear in mind the Taliban has a long-standing relationship to the United States, both as friend and foe. And what has happened in the meantime is that when uh, an Afghan government was created with, well, with fake elections and so on, uh, well, it started with, um, with um, Hamid Karzai, um, they also established links with China. And they have a border with China. And uh, China has, has a lot of, of uh, economic interests in mining in particular. Uh, in copper mines, and there's there's a there's a wealth of of minerals in in in, uh, in Afghanistan, and what I view this um, accession of the Taliban government or the Taliban to forming a government for me is a regime change. Militarily, they didn't have any. The Taliban didn't didn't have the capacity of pushing the. The, the the U.S. out of the country, uh, the United States left. They they left a, a lot of weapon systems there. Uh, they still retained uh, mercenaries, uh, you know, from private companies and so on and so forth. And there must have been a deal regarding opium or regarding uh, you know regarding the drug trade, um, mm -hmm. uh, because initially and uh, initially the the Taliban government in 2000-2001 implemented the most effective drug eradication program in the history of, of the well of the United Nations uh, organization responsible for drug uh, you know for drug abuse and control. So that that was I think the, that was that was ultimately what triggered the war. Okay, uh, well. At a, a, there was a press conference in Kabul on August 17th. The Taliban spokesman Zabihullah Mujahid vowed after the Afghanistan becoming a, a full-fledged narco state. He said, we are assuring our countrymen and women and the international community that we will not have any narcotics produced. From now on, nobody's going to get involved in the heroin trade. Nobody can be smuggled in drug smuggling. That's an exact quote. And of course, as you said, it eliminated most, I mean, they, they can do it. I mean, they eliminated it in 2000. But after the, the post 9-11 war in Afghanistan and the opium production was quickly replaced, uh, now that the US is pulling out, uh, how can you say with such certainty that this dealing in opium will continue unchecked? Well, you know, there's too much money involved there, yeah. and um, I I can't. That's what you've just quoted is a rhetorical statement, obviously. But there are all sorts of mechanisms for 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 the drug trade to uh, to continue, and it will and it will continue. Yeah. Um, and um, and I should mention that that drug trade is also. The, uh, is devastating, um, particularly in the United States, uh, 
where you have uh, mortality f- uh, from opioids, and it's also integrated into the pharmaceutical industry. But uh, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that this trade will continue and that, that behind closed doors, the, there must have been some kind of understanding. Or, but again, it, uh, you know, the opium is exported in military planes and, and there are various ways of exporting opium. I think that will continue. But the other element which is very crucial is the fact that it is in under present circumstances, the United States is using, again, an Islamic state as a proxy. And they have several Islamic states as proxies. Um, and, and let's recall, uh, of course, the, uh, the Iran revolution where uh, you know, where secular government was ultimately also replaced by an Islamic State. Now, the, the convenience of an Islamic State in the pre- present strategic geopolitical context is that they have, they are, they have made a commitment to supporting um, the Turkestan um, minority or community in Western, uh, in Western China, in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which borders, actually borders onto Afghanistan. It, it, there's a small uh, um, corridor there, which dates back to the Silk Road, uh, which was a dividing line between the, the, the Russian Empire, and the British Empire at one point, and, and uh, the Chinese are, are, the Chinese have interest in Having links with Afghanistan, they have links with Pakistan. The the, the the cooperation agreements that they have with with Pakistan are in effect integrated into those uh, of uh, of uh, Afghanistan. And there's been a big shift in government in in in, in Pakistan. Okay, uh, moving more towards a secular uh, uh, government as they had previously. But what I think what what the United States want to do is to use this uh, uh, Islamic proxy government um, to um, to well to possibly infiltrate into or to to provide support to the Yuga uh, the the Yuga community in in Western China. I should say that historically that was done by the uh, was done by the ISI, it was Pakistan's uh, inter-services intelligence, and they had various um, Islamic uh, uh, freedom fighters scattered around it. Of course, they were also involved in in training Al Qaeda and so on, with a, in a very close relationship with the United States. And but I, I think that in the present context. The United States wants to use this proxy uh, government to confront China, or or even to to undermine China's presence within within Afghanistan. Whether they're successful or not, I, that's very difficult to say. But it's much easier for them to do it with an Islamic-style government than it is with a with a secular government. You speaking about China? I mean. They've been developing a, a transcontinental grid of railroads, oil pipelines, and the industrial infrastructure as part of its 
Belt and Roads Initiative, you know, infrastructures being built along the, the northern, western, and, and so on. Uh, so China, through the planned hold on pipelines, uh, another secret aim of the war, um, they, they aim to secure control over Central Asia politically, all without firing a shot. What would the new government in Afghanistan do to, to resist those temptations? Well, I mean, you know, the, the China is is building what is called its Belt and Road framework. It's it's uh, it's it's based on infrastructure, uh, on transport infrastructure, uh, roads, railways, um, and and uh, and also maritime transportation. It's largely based on they call it the 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 modern you know the modern Silk Road. Uh, it, it's not quite. The same routing because they have they have also they're in Africa. But of course, the Chinese were also in Africa at another at several periods in 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 history. Um, but in, in regards to Central Asia, Afghanistan is virtually is a you know it, it it's a neighboring country and 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 uh, China inevitably will have trade uh, and historically has had trade with Afghanistan. And the communities, the, the the Muslim communities in Western China, of course, are part of that process. Now, I can say, and I've I've been in I've been in Western China uh, a few years back. Um, the situation there is one of 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 latent insurgencies, all of which ultimately are uh, sponsored from uh, from uh, either. Well, they're mainly sponsored by the United States. They covert operations, and that has been going on. That's nothing recent. It's 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 been there since the I would say it's at least twenty years, at least twenty years, and it's it was it's the very same type of procedure which was adopted in in Chechnya, for instance, the uh, uh, as we recall the. Uh, uh, with a view to weakening the Russian uh, the Russian Federation at the time, um, so the I, I my uh, my suspicion there is that the Taliban government will be used as a tool to uh, uh, to confront China uh, to infiltrate into uh, Xinjiang Uyghur. And possibly also to undermine uh, Chinese investments in in Afghanistan, um, and um, it's part also of the whole process of in, of encirclement of military encirclement of of China. There there were many bases were established in Pakistan uh, as well, and 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 some were uh, established in Afghanistan. But it, it I suspect. That this uh, that this government has already signed, and uh, we don't know what happens behind closed doors. But they had they had meetings uh, prior to the accession of the Taliban government in Doha, and uh, and there must have been military cooperation agreements which are which were signed. Besides all the military equipment, and we're talking about large quantities. Uh, will require cooperation with with U.S. Um, military personnel, so that I think that there are there's a there's a 
there's, I mean, the, the United States are not just moving out and or being pushed out, and that's what the media is trying to to portray, and uh, it's certainly not uh, comparable to Vietnam. Okay, it's not comparable mm, yeah. to Vietnam, but but mind you that the end result of Vietnam was the integration of Vietnam into as a U.S. ally, and that they were in that regard they won the war. And they also imposed neoliberal policies on 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 Vietnam, and and uh, which led to privatization and the and the demise of school, you know, of of public yeah. health and and so on. But that's another topic. But ultimately, I think uh, if we see the history of of um, of um, Afghanistan, which has pretty much the same population as Canada, there's about 38 million people there. Uh, we we see uh, uh, the evolution of an advanced secular society with education, women in in, the, in high positions in the public sector, and that was of course destroyed by the first Afghan, U.S. Afghan war, not Soviet Afghan war. It, the, the Soviet troops came in in an agreement uh, with with the with the government. It was part of the military cooperation agreement, and um, and then of course the the United States via the CIA, and this is confirmed by Brzezinski, they were supporting the Mujahideen, the freedom freedom fighters, Al Qaeda, of which Osama bin Laden happened to be one of them, uh, who was recruited subsequently. So that that's the picture, and and uh, if we go back to 9/11, of course. The 9/11 was uh, was a fraud with regard to uh, well, it, it was numerous frauds, but we were led to believe that somehow Afghanistan had attacked the United States, mm -hmm. and uh, and 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 uh, of course Afghanistan never attacked the United States, and neither did Al Qaeda, and it just so happens that on 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 9/11. Osama bin Laden was in the hospital in Pakistan within walking distance of the U.S. military mission yeah. and in, a, in a military hospital. Everybody knew where he was. It was totally fabricated. And then the, 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 the Taliban government in the course of the month of September, early October, stated um, that they were prepared to extradite Bin Laden, if they had, they were prepared to negotiate the extradition of Bin Laden, and this never happened because uh, George W. Bush said we don't negotiate with terrorists. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Well, fascinating analysis as always, uh, Professor Chosovsky. It's good to hear from you, uh, particularly on this subject. Thank you so much for joining us. Delighted. Uh, best wishes. Professor Michelle Chosodovsky is the founder and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Metis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again 
for listening.